Part Two, Chapter Thirty Five of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter Thirty Five Disaster and Defeat in the Valley. Autumn of eighteen sixty four. Reaching Thorne's house, I found him ready for another raid. But a spell of inclement weather made long scouting on foot impracticable so we took things easy and waited for something to turn up the chilling frosts of november found the armies in virginia resting from six months incessant marching and battling there was never seen more stubborn courage and unconquerable tenacity of purpose than was displayed by the army of the potomac and that of the army of northern virginia after they had joined issue in the spring not long since gone face to face they had swayed backward and forward alternate victors for the day. They might decimate, but not conquer, one nor the other. In all the battles of the world, one day has decided the contest, leaving one army flying in dismay, and the other flushed with decisive victory. In the New World there were fashioned two armies composed of the finest fighting material of which the annals of history ever makes mention. The bitterest, deadliest contest of ancient times between Rome and Carthage, culminating in the Second Phoenician War, was nothing compared to America's internecine strife. Not one bloody battle had been fought, but a score. Not a dozen hotly contested skirmishes, but hundreds. And in the late fall, after three years of bloody strife, with half their number dead or wounded, these two Anglo-Saxon hosts confronted each other with dauntless crest and defiant eyes. Had all conditions been equal, the struggle would have ended simply in a war of extermination. The South, like a giant pierced with many wounds, was slowly weakening. God seemed to have forsaken them. The strains of the star-spangled banner from the Yankees' bands seemed more acceptable to the ears of Providence than the hymns chanted by the rebel soldiery around their campfires. All that desperate valor, devotion which knew no bounds, patriotism which was sublime in its purity could do, was done by the army and the people of Virginia. Had the Confederate government performed its duty, or had Mr. Davis died or resigned at the commencement of the campaign, affairs would have worn a different aspect. The Fabius of the Southern Revolution had been removed by the President, and when Mr. Davis, who thought himself infallible, took a dislike, he became stone-blind in his hatred. When the autocrat of Richmond removed Johnston from the head of the Army of the Tennessee, he dealt a death-stab in the vitals of the Confederacy, and the fair Southland was open to the Federals to march where they would. Another great, nay, fatal mistake, was the placing of General Jubal Early in command of the Army of the Valley. It shortened the war fully a year. When Jackson's old legions were destroyed, the end was near. The Army of Northern Virginia was fearfully thinned in ranks. The loss had been frightful, and but few of the regiments numbered over two hundred men. Grant had Lee nearly surrounded, and slowly but surely was contracting his encircling lines. Lee, mindful of this, had dispatched early, with Jackson's old corps, to threaten Washington and extricate him from the dread dilemma of a forced retreat or a persistent siege but the famous foot cavalry had no longer a leader with transcendent military genius to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Instead, they were placed under the control of one who was unfitted by his personal habits for commanding a separate army, 
even had he possessed the qualifications. General Early had placed under him in the summer of 1864 probably the finest body of infantry which the modern world ever produced. It was organized and trained under Jackson and animated with his unquenchable ardor. Its celerity of movement was wonderful, and the small, compact army of veterans could be shifted from point to point with a suddenness absolutely startling. Under a leader of even mediocre military genius, in such a theater as the Valley of Virginia and the wide fields of Maryland, there should have been no bounds to their achievements. In July, 1864, when Early commanded the Valley District, his troops, according to General A. L. Long, Chief of Artillery, 2nd Corps, consisted of 10,000 infantry and 40 guns, with 1,500 cavalry, making of all arms an army of 15,000 veteran troops. They were perfect soldiers, veterans of many battles, trained like racehorses, and could make their forty miles steadily from Sunday morning till Saturday night, with several miles in addition in an emergency. They could live on a pound of meal a day, and all were fine marksmen, who understood all the arts of protection in battle, at the same time inflicting damage upon the foe. Then the flying artillery and field batteries were in the highest state of efficiency. With ten thousand such men, had they been maneuvered properly, they would have been a terror. Their fleetness would have neutralized all odds which could be brought against them. Stonewall's old corps believed themselves almost invincible. The men who had followed Stonewall Jackson over unnumbered miles, and whose only check was at Gettysburg, were never yet routed. As Macaulay said of Cromwell's Ironsides, they came to regard the day of battle as the day of certain triumph. Had either Generals Gordon, Beauregard, or Mahone been placed as their commander, imagination runs riot in thinking what might have been accomplished, and in knowing what would have taken place. At first, Early achieved some success. He drove Hunter back from Litchburg, but allowed him to escape with his whole command. Fortune offered the South two more chances in the summer of 64, and General Early caused the failure of both. The ninth of July saw the foot cavalry across the Potomac, with General Lew Wallace in their front. Attacking him, Gordon's men, after a spirited fight, routed him, and Early at once turned toward Washington. Every one of old Stonewall's men felt sure that they would soon file through the streets of the national capital. They marched, rather they dog-trotted, and ran from Monocacy Bridge eastward, and on the eleventh of July drew up before Washington. Early made his headquarters at Mr. Blair's, who was a member of President Lincoln's former cabinet, and thereby hangs a tale, for it was common gossip in the days succeeding, among the rank and file, that a keg of old peach brandy, which Montgomery Blair left at his house, saved Washington from capture. It was said and believed by Early's men that on the evening of the 10th of July, 1864, he drank long and deeply from that keg, and sank into a deep slumber which lasted for hours, and from which nothing could rouse him, and that is why the order to advance was not given. The rebel skirmishers crept closer and closer to the city, and soon a steady stream of all kinds of emissaries of the southern sympathizers came to them. Old negroes, young children, boys, all reaching our skirmishers, had but one tale to tell. Come in at once. There are only department clerks in the trenches. Don't delay, but come at once. The morning hours slipped away, and when the rebels advanced twelve hours later, they struck plumb against their old adversary, the Sixth Corps. 
and the sight of that steady line of blue convinced every private that the jig was up. Swinton says, On the 11th of July, Early's van reined up before the fortifications covering the northern approaches to Washington. By afternoon, the Confederate infantry had come up, and showed a strong line in front of Fort Stevens. Early then had an opportunity to dash into the city, the works being very slightly defended. The hope at headquarters that the capital could be saved from capture was very slender. But his conduct was feeble, and during the day the Sixth Corps arrived and was soon followed by the 19th. After this, no one with sound nerves had any fears of Washington's capture. General Gordon, who commanded the advance, says in his book, Reminiscences of the Civil War, I myself rode to a point on those breastworks at which there was no force whatever. The unprotected space was broad enough for the easy passage of Early's army without resistance. The rank and file of the army were bitterly resentful that they were not permitted to enter the city. They never forgave Early. From that day the grim veterans fought well, but never with dash and firm determination to do or die. The spirit, which had heretofore made them victorious on many a bloody field. Early and his friends claimed that he could not have taken Washington, and even if he had, it would have done no good. However, suppose Stonewall Jackson had been in command of the corps he loved so well. Only imagine. Nay, we know what he would have done. Closing up his infantry, he would have stormed the defenses on the morning of the 11th, occupied the city, then dispatched picked bodies of cavalrymen down the Potomac, ninety miles distant and by impressing every horse along the route, they could have reached Point Lookout in twenty-four hours, and liberated nineteen thousand Confederate prisoners of war confined therein, and all veterans at that. His army, thus reinforced, he could have marched to Baltimore, and there the Knights of the Golden Circle had many recruits to join him. Then, well, each one can read the result and foretell the consequences according to the bias of his own mind. He would certainly have loosened the grip of Grant's iron fingers from around Lee's throat. Early's whole campaign was but one succession of sickening blunders. Defeat followed defeat with portentous rapidity. He was beaten in every fight. At Opaquan Creek, Fisher's Hill, Strasburg, and Halton, and saved himself only by showing his heels. The last chance the South had of winning her independence, and a good one at that, was deliberately thrown away by General Jubal Early, and, with inconceivable duplicity, he tried to shift the blame from his soldiers to that of the rank and file. I won a brilliant victory, but my men left the ranks and went to plundering the Yankee camps, and were so demoralized that they made no resistance. Never was a baser charge conceived by a baser mind. Early had nothing to do with winning the victory. The plan, the execution, and the onslaught was made by General Gordon, and it was a scheme as brilliant, audacious, and successful as that of Marlborough in winning the Battle of Malpaquit in 1709. Sheridan, after administering a crushing defeat to Early at Fisher's Hill, went into camp fully satisfied that he had clipped the claws and drawn the teeth from the panther of the valley. So he called the huntsmen off, and officers and men sat at ease, enjoying the glorious Virginia autumn weather. Sheridan's right was protected by his corps of superb cavalry, ten thousand strong. His left was perfectly secure. At least he and his subordinates thought so, as they gazed at the precipitous front of Massanutton Mountain and the swift-flowing river beneath. As well expect the rebels to swoop like eagles from the sky. 
General Gordon, in company with his staff officers, and General Evans, of Georgia, climbed to the top of Massanutten, and from this airy they, with powerful field glasses, saw every man, horse, and gun at their feet, and the soldiery taking things as coolly as if there was not a rebel nearer the Richmond. General Gordon, as he gazed upon the scene, must have felt the same fierce joy fill his heart that Stonewall Jackson did when he saw the unsuspecting Dutchman who constituted Hooker's right wing at Chancellorsville. Gordon turned to his companions with the remark that if Early approved of his plan and let him follow it to the end, the total destruction of Sheridan was inevitable. It was a good omen that Kershaw's crack division of Carolinians had just arrived the day before, bringing faith and hope to the army of the valley. There was a narrow path that zigzagged down the rocky fastness of Massanutten, and all that night the hardy infantry crept and glided in single file along this low tract, and forded and swam the Shenandoah, and at dawn of day formed in line of battle within pistol-shot of Sheridan's sleeping army. Gordon gave the word, Forward! The silence of the solemn calm morn was broken by the foreboding rebel yell issuing from thousands of throats. History repeats itself. What schoolboy has not learned by heart the attack of Marco Bozeros upon the Turkish camp at Lapsby? Never was a surprise more complete, never was there a success more quickly earned. The Federal soldiers who were not shot down had either to surrender or seek safety in flight. It was every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost. All lines of discipline disappeared, and a fleeing mass raced to the rear. An hour after sunrise the Federal camp was captured, and nearly all their artillery was seized. Their fine cavalry force was panic-stricken and retreated before Rosser's attack. The Sixth Corps of Sherman's army alone kept its formation, but they were badly rattled. Gordon now made his final preparations for the coup. His army was fresh, united, and wild with victory. Gordon being ready, he drew back his arm to strike. His lips were parted to give the signal to advance, when the evil genius of the South stopped the blow, stilled the lips, and gave to the cause he fought for a deadly thrust. Let Gordon tell the tale in his own words. Two entire corps, the English and 19th, constituting two-thirds of Sherman's army, swarmed in utter disorganization to the rear. Only the Sixth Corps held its ground, and it was doomed unless some marvelous intervention should check the Confederate concentration that was forming against it. That intervention did occur, and it was a truly marvelous one, for it came from the Confederate commander himself. It was at that hour largely outnumbered, and I had directed every Confederate command to assail it in front and upon both flanks simultaneously. I also directed Colonel Thomas Carter, the brilliant chief of artillery, to gallop along the broad highway with all of his batteries and every piece of captured artillery available, and pour an incessant sheet of shot and shell upon this solitary remaining corps, explaining at the same time the movement I had ordered the infantry to make. As Colonel Carter surveyed the position of Sheridan's Sixth Corps, he exclaimed, General, you will need no infantry. With an enfilade fire from my batteries, I will destroy that corps in twenty minutes. At this moment, General Early came on the field and said, Well, Gordon, this is glory enough for one day. I pointed to the Sixth Corps and replied, But we have one more blow to strike, and then there will not be an organized company of infantry in Sheridan's army. When I had finished explaining my plans for its destruction, Early replied, Yes, it will go away directly if you let it alone. My heart sank into my boots. 
and so it came to pass that the final halting and the orderly retreat of this federal corps lost us the great opportunity and converted the brilliant victory of the morning into disastrous defeat in the evening there we stood and dallied away six precious hours and allowed the enemy to rally and make a counter-attack with all of his force this was done and owing to early leaving a wide gap in his line which was pierced by the enemy and our victory converted into one of the most complete and ruinous routs in the entire war it makes one dizzy to think of such a headlong descent from the elysium of triumph to the erebus of despair general early insisted and so stated in his published report that the bad conduct of his own men caused the astounding disaster general early himself realized later the fatal mistake of the halt and gave an indicative caution to his faithful staff officer who was leaving with a sketch of cedar creek for general lee captain hotchkiss said general early told me not to tell general lee that we ought to have advanced in the morning of middletown for said he we ought to have done so the private soldiers who served under early disliked him with the same unholy rancor that satan is said to maintain for holy water and they had ample cause early declared in his official reports and in his book that he lost the battle owing to the subsequent bad conduct of the troops thus he shifts the blame from his own soldiers and places it on the soldiers of the barefooted ragged veterans there was not one of them who was in that battle who did not know the truth and to those men who made stonewall jackson's corps famous to be charged with cowardice or worse made them mad almost to the point of mutiny general gordon nobly comes to the rescue of those men and proves by irrefutable testimony that early was a willful and malicious liar he cites the testimony of general evans who commanded a division general cullen a battle major general wharton generals winston and goggin and a host of witnesses bear willing testimony that the soldiers were in line of battle eager to advance and remain staunch and firm all day the plundering of the yankee camps was by men on the sick list wagon teamsters and the drift of non-coms that follow in the wake of every army is it any wonder that after this rank and file refused to peril their lives under this unfair unsafe man a whole regiment of our cavalry would ride off laughing if they saw advancing a group of blue and yellow uniforms his men entertained so poor an opinion of early that they would have beat a retreat as soon as the fire got hot they knew he would never gain a victory and thought it no use making any desperate efforts or sacrificing their lives early was to sheridan what banks was to stonewall jackson and when rifles guns and howitzers would be sent him from richmond the soldiers would write upon them in pencil charcoal and chalk general sheridan carol of jubal a early in a letter to general early from that brilliant cavalry leader general rosser who commanded the celebrated laurel brigade he says brave man that he is i participated in the latter part of your valley campaign and i feel that i not only have the right but that it is my duty one that i owe to posterity to explain as far as i am able the cause of the disasters which befell your army in the valley certainly from the escape of hunter at lynchburg to the capture of your little army at waynesboro such a series of disasters never occurred in the annals of war incompetency is not a crime and that you failed in the valley was not due to your neglect or carelessness for i know you were assiduous but god did not make you a general 
and it was General R. E. Lee's overestimate of you, or in other words, I may say, it was General R. E. Lee's mistake in trusting so important a command as that you had, to you before you had been fully tried. Yours truly, Thomas L. Rosser. General Early did not possess those qualities which constitute a leader. He had an ill-disciplined mind, with no self-poise. He was profane, loving the red wine, and lacking magnetism which inspires the troops and urges them to victory. Had he possessed nerve and will, he never would have permitted the valley to have been devastated as it was by the foe. Jackson or Mosby would have demanded reprisals. Read Little Phil's orders, which did not even provoke a protest from that mild warrior early. In the late fall, General Sheridan issued the following instructions to General Merritt. Headquarters, Military Division, November 15th, 64. To clear the country of these parties, Mosby, White, and Gilmore's Rangers, you will consume and destroy all substance and forage, burn all barns and mills with contents, drive off all stock in the region. This order must be literally executed. P. H. Sheridan. This pronunciamento has but one parallel in history, that of the commands of Grimm Henry the Eighth to the Earl of Hertford to suppress the rebellion in Scotland. The fair valley was a mass of smoking ruins, nothing left standing but the dwelling houses, nothing left unkilled but the despairing inmates, and the burden of the cries which came from the trembling lips was, Oh, for another Stonewall Jackson! In a communication to General Rosser, I asked him to write an account of the Valley Campaign and give a soldier's criticism upon General Early's management thereof. In response, I secured the following. Sir, General J. A. Early states in his Memoirs, page 42, that he received orders from General R. E. Lee on the 12th of June to proceed to the Valley against Hunter, taking with him the 12th Army Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia and two battalions of artillery and in pursuance to said order, he marched early on the morning of the 13th. At the time General Lee gave this order to General Early, it was known to them both that General Sheridan, in command of a large force of Union cavalry and artillery, was moving in the same direction, and that General Hampton and Fitz Lee were in pursuit of him. On the 11th and 12th, Hampton and Lee fought a hard battle with Sheridan at Trevilian, defeating him, turning him back, and thus eliminating him as a factor in the scheme against Lynchburg and the campaign in which Early was to participate. Yet, with these facts before him, Early did not communicate with Hampton and Lee, see Hampton, but heedlessly blundered along, as if all were in waiting for him to arrive before the performance would begin. It was said and believed by Early's men that on the evening of the 11th of July, 1864, he drank long and deeply from that keg, and sank into a deep slumber which lasted for hours, and from which nothing could rouse him. And that is why the order to advance was not given. Had Early been an able general, he would, on leaving the trenches around Richmond, have sent an efficient staff officer with a body of intelligent scouts well ahead, with instructions to use the telegraph and all other means of communication, and thus put himself in communication with the forces which were opposing Hunter and Sheridan. Had he done this, General Breckinridge, who was at Lynchburg, could have had cars at Charlottesville to meet him and his army, might thus have been put into Lynchburg the night of the 16th instead of the p.m. of the 18th. Hunter could not then have escaped during the night of the 18th, and was too far ahead of Early to encourage pursuit, though Early did wear his men out in an attempt to catch him. 
General Lee had authorized Early to use his discretion as to which was best, to make a raid into Maryland or return to his army. Early decided that the raid was the proper thing to do, and marched to Staunton. Now while at Staunton he communicated with General Lee, and I suppose a general plan was agreed upon. However, it appears that while in Staunton, Early decided to push down the valley, play anew the old games of Stonewall Jackson, capture Siegel, Harper's Ferry, tear up the railroad track, and make himself another valley hero. But after clearing the valley of the enemy on the 3rd of July, he seemed to be dazed. General Lee, learning that he was hurrying off somewhere, cautioned him to be sure that he was ready, but had early gone on rapidly at once, he would have reached Washington on the 7th, before the works were manned, passing Frederick and Monocacy before Wallace got there, and he would have been able to have marched into Washington without a struggle. Had he done this, stampeding Lincoln and his cabinet, and then burnt the city, Grant would have been called from Richmond, and Lee with his army could have joined early, and great results would or might have followed. Early was not general enough, and did not see the opportunity which lay at his feet. It was well enough to send his cavalry along to the right and left, as he did, but there was no necessity of scattering as he did, and the point-lookout feature of the campaign, without the taking of Washington, was folly. Early escaped from Washington just as Hunter escaped from him at Lynchburg, by getting a good long start of his pursuers. The levying of tribute on the towns of Hagerstown and Frederick, and the burning of Chambersburg, were unwise and barbarous and demoralizing to the army. Indeed, the raid on Chambersburg was one of the greatest disasters attending his campaign. It roused the North, and the plunder brought off by his cavalry so encumbered it that it was easily vanquished by Averill in the Moreland Valley, and practically rendered hors de combat for the remainder of the campaign. Early, in endeavoring to imitate Jackson, failed to ask himself the question, what would Jackson do if he were in my place, but tried to act and repeat the maneuvers which Jackson had gone through with in previous campaigns, forgetting that the circumstances had so changed as to give them a misfit in every case where he applied them. When Sheridan came to the command of the opposing army, General Early disparaged his ability, underestimated his strength, scattered his own small army, and marched and countermarched upon his flanks in the most reckless manner, and when Sheridan attacked him on the 19th of September at Winchester, his command was so scattered that his splendid little army of veterans was overwhelmed in detail by superior numbers, and for the first time they learned that their general was not equal to his responsibilities, and from that day to the last disaster at Waynesboro they had no confidence in their commanding general. The position of defense at Fisher's Hill was extremely faulty. Early massed his troops on the right, where the position was strong, and did not even attempt to strengthen or reinforce his left, which was turned without the least difficulty. At Cedar Creek he halted, I should say about 10 a.m., and remained inactive till run over by the returning enemy about 4 p.m. The little array had no confidence in him, and every man felt that he could better rely on his own judgment than on that of their commanding general. Had Early been an able general, he would have secured, during that long interval of inactivity from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m., his retreat and his trophies. The army grew uneasy. The enemy had time to leisurely examine and estimate Early's strength and position, and when Sheridan did return on us, that splendid little army, which had accomplished wonders in the morning under Gordon, fled in wild disorder in the afternoon under Early. 
it was all due to lack of confidence, not to the enemy's skill or numbers. At Waynesboro, when Early posted his little command on the wrong side of the river, the men knew that to stand meant capture and they ran for safety. Had they been posted on the right side of the river, and had Early not been in command, they would have beaten Sheridan off. The second corps of the Army of Northern Virginia, which General Early took to the valley, was without doubt the finest body of troops in that army. Thoroughly disciplined, ably command, and having followed Stonewall Jackson in all his triumphs, its esprit de corps was superb. General J. A. Early was a true patriot. He was energetic, vigilant, and brave, but he was unmilitary and lacked enthusiasm, and was utterly unfit to command. Yours truly, Thomas L. Rosser, Rugby Hill, Albemarle County, Virginia, March 1887. After demoralizing and wrecking the finest corps in the army, Early was dismissed from the force. General Lee, with his generous heart, knowing that the incalculable evil had been wrought, and was irremediable, used the gentlest language when depriving him of command. He said, It is essential that we should have the cheerful and hearty support of the people, and the full confidence of the soldiers, without which our efforts would be embarrassed and our means of resistance weakened. I have reluctantly arrived at the conclusion that you cannot command the united and willing cooperation which is so essential to success. Your reverses in the valley, which the public and the army judge chiefly by the recruits, have, I fear, impaired your influence both with the people and with the soldiers, who would be more likely to develop the strength and resources of the country and inspire the soldiers with confidence. I am respectfully R. E. Lee. Men feel profound sympathy for a soldier who is unlucky or bowed down with misfortune, but any officer who coolly and deliberately charges his own soldiers with cowardice in order to save his own damaged reputation deserves nothing but contempt. General Early proved the truth of the old saying that it is an evil bird that fouls its own nest. End of chapter 35